Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. In our last study of Hebrews chapter 7, we broke into the deeper things of Scripture. We began to talk about Christ being a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And if you have your Bible, I'd like you to join me in Hebrews chapter 7. I am told that several years ago, a high-rise hotel was built in Galveston, Texas, overlooking the Gulf of Mexico. They sank pilings into the Gulf and built the structure out over the water. And when the hotel was about to have its grand opening, someone thought, what if people decide to fish out of the hotel windows? That could be a problem. So what they did is they decided to place signs in the hotel rooms that literally said, no fishing out of the hotel windows. Well, many people just ignored the signs and it created a difficult problem because lines were actually getting tangled. People in the dining room saw fish just sort of flapping around and hitting the big, beautiful picture windows when people were trying to reel them in. So what did the manager of the hotel do? Well, he solved the problem simply by taking down those little signs. Why? Because no one checks into a hotel room thinking about fishing out the window. The signs forbidding the action gave the people the thought. It put the idea into the heads of the people coming for a visit. And this is what the author of Hebrews has been telling us, that the Mosaic law could not change the heart of man. It could not provide the righteousness of Christ. Why? Because it was never intended to. But the law could prompt us to sin. Before we get into this, I want to clear a point of confusion. I've had a couple of good discussions with a couple of you this week about some things. And there are two terms that I've heard people over the course of my life get confused about. The Old Covenant and the Old Testament. I'm I'm here to tell you this morning that the Old Covenant and the Old Testament are not the same. I want you to hear this with me. The Old Covenant refers to the particular relationship that God established with Israel on Mount Sinai. It's very specific. The Old Testament is simply the scriptures of Israel before the time of Christ. Jesus referred to them as the law and prophets in Matthew 22. Paul referred to them as the oracles of God in Romans 3. The Mosaic Law, which we're going to talk a lot more about next week, it was conditional and it was temporary, a temporary covenant for the nation of Israel that dealt with the temple, it dealt with the priesthood, and it dealt with the sacrifices. But I hope we all agree that the Old Testament is not temporary. The books of the Old Testament form an enduring witness to God and His ways that continues to have authority right alongside the New Testament. 
You see, the Bible tells us that the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, it was weak and it was incapable of redeeming a man. But the Bible never speaks about the deficiency of the Old Testament. In fact, just the opposite. Jesus said in Luke 16, 31, he says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one rise from the dead. Now, we are not under the Mosaic law of Israel, but that does not mean that the Old Testament does not have value because in it we learn more of who God is and of his purpose and plans for mankind because the Old Testament continues to be an enduring theological witness of a righteous and holy God. So find your way to Hebrews chapter 7 and watch how we begin in verse 18. It starts with this. It says, for on the one hand, there is an unknowing of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Now, I want you to notice the structure of the verse. Your translation that you have there, it should say something like this. On the one hand, but on the other hand. See, this was a Greek device for contrasting two items. God knew when he established the Mosaic Covenant that one day it would stop. One day it would come to an end, that it was weak, that the Levitical priests and the law could not bring men into a close, intimate relationship with God. You see, the weakness is that it could not eliminate the cause of man's sinful position before a holy and righteous God. Sure, God established it to reveal to man the holiness of God and the depravity of the human race. God established it to introduce and teach the concept of a substitutionary sacrifice that pointed forward to the work of Jesus Christ. The Mosaic law, it could never justify man because the righteousness of God is not something that can be obtained by our efforts. To say it another way, no amount of effort, no amount of keeping the law could keep us righteous before God. It was unprofitable because it could not remove the effects of sin. It had no power to produce change within the heart of man, change within the heart of the sinner. It could tell a person what to do, but it couldn't empower them. It could not enable them to do it. The law could not bring people to maturity. The law had a purpose. It was our tutor, Paul says, until Christ came. You see, the law had a purpose for the nation of Israel, but its supervision of the lives of people ended at the cross with the death of Jesus Christ. And so the Mosaic law would be annulled, the author of Hebrews is telling us, put away because the sacrifice of Christ ended the error of the Levitical order and the animal sacrifices. The better hope, what's this talking about? The better hope that we have is the assurance that this new relationship that we have is now possible for us to experience. Why? Thanks to our great high priest, Jesus Christ. You see, the law could not justify us before God, but Christ conquered this. The law could not remove the effects of the sin, but Christ conquered this at the cross. Jesus Christ is free to empower every believer to live a life that honors him. The presence of Christ in our lives is the hope of our glory. 
See, when a person is identified with Christ in his death, in his resurrection, they can live for God. Why can they live for God? Because it is Christ who is living inside of them, living in them. And Paul has much said this about his own self. He said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. And then read it. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'll tell you what, if you want to change your life as a believer in Jesus Christ, memorize this verse. Memorize it. Let it change how you live because you will start to understand that you're not living under your own power. You're living under the power of Christ. In Christ, justification is possible. In Christ, sanctification is possible. And in Christ, our future glorification is possible. The believer through Christ has unrestricted access into the very presence of a holy and righteous God. And this is why it is possible for us, as the writer declares in Hebrews, that we, we can draw near to God. Verse 20 of Hebrews. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, But he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. A Levitical priest did not need to have an oath from God to receive their ministry. It was about being from the right tribe and meeting the requirements found in the law. But Christ, as we have seen from Psalm 110, had an oath from God that he would be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. God promised with an oath that the Messiah would be the guarantee of a better covenant. Now, why is that the case? Because the Levitical priesthood was the heart of the old covenant, but God brought them both to an end. You see, the Messiah ushered in a new priesthood and the Messiah will usher in, which we're going to talk about a bunch next week, a new covenant. And that should be the translation at the end of verse 22, a better covenant, not a better testament. If you're using the King James this morning, you may have noticed that verse 22 says a better testament. Now, it's it's commonly misunderstood here to think that it, it means the Old Testament or the New Testament, but it's not about either one. The wording is an actual reference to the last will and testament of our Lord. And what was the last will and testament of our Lord? It was the new covenant, which he gave at the Last Supper shortly before he went to the cross. And this is why the other translations cut to the chase and they just read a better covenant. You see, the oath of God guarantees the immutability of Christ's priesthood. And it is the very shed blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that established this new covenant. This is going to be the focus of chapter 8. But here's what you need to know at this point, right now, here today. The Levitical priesthood rested on the Mosaic covenant. But the Mosaic covenant, the law of the Old Testament, it was never intended to be permanent and it was conditional. 
Those serving in the priesthood had no assurance that their priesthood would go on, that it would actually continue. But Christ was inducted into the priesthood by an oath that God the Father made with God the Son. You see, when God made an oath, he didn't change his mind. It's the author's way of telling us, if you want to challenge the priesthood of Jesus Christ, you're going to have to contend with God in heaven because the priesthood of Jesus was established by none other than the Father himself. And verse 22 says that Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant, a guarantee, assurance that a promise will be kept. Jesus is our surety. He is the assurance of the new covenant. It is a better covenant. Christ being set apart by the Father to the priesthood was quite different from the sons of Aaron. No Old Testament priest was inducted into office with an oath. And when the author of Hebrews was putting these words down the temple, it was still standing in Jerusalem. And the priests were still going through the meaningless motions of an obsolete ritual. And just a few short years later, some of you know that the Romans would come, destroy the temple, and deport both the people and the priests. So for close to 2,000 years now, the Levitical functions of the priests, they were brought to an end. And I honestly think that it was God's way of forcing upon the attention of the Hebrew people the total redundancy of their priesthood and their rituals. Our risen Savior, he guarantees that the terms of God's covenant will be fulfilled completely because God will not abandon his people. Maybe you've heard of this guy. In 2005, Shindong Hayek became the only person to escape from what is called a total control zone internment camp in North Korea and live to actually tell his story. Now, most of these camps have political opponents of the government, and a great, great number of Christians are locked up in these camps. Hundreds of thousands of people are in camps in North Korea right now. Shin was actually born in prison. He was born in North Korean Camp 14, but then he was transferred to Camp 18, a less severe camp at the time. He was able to escape on two different occasions. The first time was back in 1999, and he was caught with just in a few days. The second time was in 2001, and he, he got a little further that time. He was able to cross into China, but he was caught after just four months by the Chinese police. And then he was sent back to North Korea. Well, then, because of that, he was punished in Camp 14 in the year 2002 when he was 20 years old because of this escape. Shin was burned repeatedly and tortured in an underground prison for six months. Born in prison, he really knew no other life. For the most part, everything Shin learned about life, the world that he knew was from these camps. And because of this, in his mind, there were only two groups of people, prisoners and guards. You were born as one or you were born as the other, and you lived your entire life that way. Well, every day Shin was told what to do, and he did it. And for 23 years, he was always, always hungry, fed cornmeal and cabbage. People are turning to insects and rats just to survive, and then they're forced into hard labor. But Shin said everything changed one day. 
A new prisoner named Park was brought into Camp 14, and with him came stories of a different world on the other side of the electric fence. He talked about living in cities and traveling off to China, but one particular thing in his stories defined freedom for Shin more than anything else. And you're going to laugh at what it was. It was broiled chicken. See, Park told him that the outside of this electric fence was another world where you could actually eat broiled chicken and you could eat it anytime you wanted, anytime you wanted. Well, Shin had never eaten chicken. This sounded like a good thing, but he knew what chicken tasted like. It tasted like freedom. So these two men made an attempt to escape over this electrified fence. Park attempted to go over first and he immediately died because a large surge of electricity went through his body and it stopped his heart. But his body became a bridge for Shin to be able to climb to freedom. And that day he became the only person to ever, ever escape from what is known as a total control zone internment camp in North Korea and live to tell about it. Now, Shin is no longer a prisoner. He now lives in South Korea, and he eats broiled chicken whenever he wants. The guy likes chicken. What are you going to do? But this chicken, along with his freedom, was purchased by a friend who gave his life for him. Now, Shin had been trapped, trapped by the laws of North Korea. He was free because of the sacrifice of another. But don't think for a second that Shin would ever choose to go back to living underneath the laws of North Korea. Don't think for a second that Shin would go back to living under the system that he was under before. But that is the tragedy that we see every day in the church, men doing exactly this, freed by the shed blood of another, but willing to put themselves back under the bondage of the laws of Moses, willing to put themselves under something that God indeed had a purpose for, but men had come along and distorted it, turning it into something that enslaved people. The Hebrew people, they wanted freedom, and they now had it in Jesus Christ. So why would you turn back? And let me ask you the same thing. Why do so many in the church turn back to legalism and the rules of men? Verse 23. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, the basic idea of these verses is that the Levitical priests had to keep replacing one another. Why? Because men die. Men die. That's what happens. It is estimated that from the time of Aaron to the fall of the temple in 70 AD, that Israel had 83 different high priests. Get out of the mindset of being shocked by death. It is the end of every one of us in this room. People that grieve the most at death tend to be the people who live for this life rather than the eternal but praise God, Christ will never die. Christ will never need to be replaced as our high priest. He will see his work through to the end and he will deliver his people. Christ has an unchangeable priesthood. And because of this, we can have a confidence in him. 
Now, verse 25, I want you to consider what's going on in this text. It's not just about redemption. You see, Christ is able to make sure that his people can be delivered into the rest promised in Hebrews, that Christ can deliver his faithful into the presence of God. And he's saying God is able to bring us to our appointed end. God is able to bring us to maturity. God is able to deliver us safely home with him. And so the message of Hebrews is even though you're going through tough things in life, even though you're struggling, even though you're facing difficult times, we do not have to turn back. We do not have to forfeit our rewards in Christ, our promise of an inheritance in glory, because Jesus Christ. Christ, he can support us by continuing to provide his mercy and his grace in our lives. Hold on to this truth that Jesus Christ himself is interceding for us. Now, verse 25 is not about eternal security. Some people take it that way. Some people take this to mean here that Jesus Christ is saving sinners from the penalty of sin. But I would say this, it can't mean this because then the text would be saying that our salvation from the penalty of sin depends on Christ continuing to intercede for us. Our salvation depends solely on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is why Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished. And the apostle Paul stated in Colossians chapter 2 that God has forgiven us all of our trespasses and wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that were against us, having nailed it where? To the cross. You see, the finished work of Christ does not need Christ to intercede for us in order to secure our salvation. So this must mean something else here. It is all about remaining faithful to him so that we receive that full reward that has been promised to us when Jesus Christ returns. This is about sanctification. This is us growing in Christ and the process by which we are freed from the power of sin. Jesus is able to help those that keep coming to him. He is able to help those believers who want to keep walking in his grace. Now, if you've read this verse before, you probably have a picture in your mind of what you think this looks like with Jesus interceding on our behalf. What you think that intercession looks like. Here's how I don't want you to think of it. Do not think of it as Christ standing before the Father with outstretched arms, crying and begging with tears, pleading our case in the presence of a reluctant God. That God the Father is so angry with his people that Jesus must constantly appeal to him just to spare us. Think of it like this. Our priest our king, the perfect son of God, sitting on his righteous throne in heaven, asking what he will from the father who always hears and always grants his request. And if you understand his position as God, the son, and if you understand our position in Jesus Christ, this is where our assurance is found for the believer. This is what makes Jesus Christ unique. This is what makes him different from all the other religious leaders of the world. Muhammad's dead. Buddha's dead. But who is alive? Jesus. Jesus is alive. And even though Christ faced death, his priesthood continues because he rose from the grave. We have one high priest. An unchanging priest means an unchangeable priesthood. And this means security and confidence for God's people. 
Jesus Christ is the same, what, yesterday, today, and forever. And unlike the other religious systems of this world, Jesus offered himself as the way to God, not a list of rules. Because Christ is able to bring his people to maturity in the faith. But notice the wording in verse 25. Those who come to God through him, this should remind you of the words of chapter 4 in Hebrews, where the author had already told the Christians this. He said, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, not drawing near to God for salvation, but drawing near to help us in our time of weakness, when we're struggling in our faith, crying out to God. The saving ministry that the author has in mind is for Christians who look to our high priest to receive his grace and mercy as we walk with Christ. He's able to save us to the uttermost. He's able to save us completely, meaning Christ is able to carry his people through the trials and the difficulties of life all the way to the end so that they finish this life qualified to enter that greater rest, saved from the power and temptation to sin, to turn back away from Christ. Famous author Max Locato, I, some of his theology I do question, but I sure love his stories. He told of the time when he was dropped by his insurance company because he had one too many speeding tickets. I know nobody in this room has ever been in that situation. One day a letter showed up in the mail telling him to look for insurance coverage from someone else. And as a minister of God's word, he started reflecting on this idea that he wasn't good enough for his insurance company, thinking that Christians often have this same type of fear, the fear of receiving some letter from God and then having a little bit of fun with this. He imagined what this would look like. And he wrote, straight from the pearly gates, underwriting division. Dear Mrs. Smith, he writes, I'm writing in response to this morning's request for forgiveness. I'm sorry to inform you that you have reached your quota of sins. Our records show that since employing our services, you have struggled seven times with greed and your prayer life is substandard when compared to others of like age and circumstance. Further review reveals that your understanding of doctrine is in the lower 20 percentile and you have excessive tendencies to gossip. You understand that grace has its limits. Jesus sends his regrets and kindest regards and hopes that you will find some other form of coverage. You see, that's the trap, though, isn't it, of legalism. That's the trap of trying to earn the righteousness of Christ, of trying to earn the grace of God. And this is how a slave would live, who constantly lives in fear of not knowing enough, not doing enough, not ever measuring up. And that is what the author of Hebrews is telling us. He's saying, rest in Jesus Christ. Rest in his sufficient and life-changing grace. Verse 26, for such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners and has become higher than the heavens who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. 
Now, verse 26 is simply pointing out the superiority of Christ. He is holy. He is blameless. This is saying he is the holy one. Wording used for God alone because this is who he is. Harmless or innocent, meaning that his motives are without blame. In other words, this is saying there's no hidden agenda with Jesus Christ. He doesn't have some plot to deceive you. He is undefiled, meaning with absolute purity. He hasn't been polluted by sin. As part of the temple worship for Israel, the priest had to offer a sacrifice for his own sins before he could offer one for the sins of others. And the author tells us that Christ is separate from sinners. He is in a different class from sinful men because Jesus Christ has become higher. He has become exalted above the heavens. He sits in glory at the right hand of the Father because he has a priestly ministry in the eternal temple of God. The earthly temple had been destroyed once polluted several times, but the priestly ministry of Christ continues on. It continues on without interruption. And that is why verse 27 is telling us that Christ does not need daily sacrifices for his own sin. First, why? Because he's sinless. But second, because he is one perfect sacrifice. His one perfect sacrifice completely satisfied God. By dying on the cross, Jesus stretched himself out over that altar and offered his own life to atone for sin. No other priest could take on the role of being our sacrificial lamb. In verse 28, it starts to wrap up. Look at the profound difference between Christ and the Levitical priests. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints the son who has been perfected forever. The Mosaic law established men as high priests, even though they had their weakness. The men that served were sinful. They weren't perfect, but they served because the law commanded them to serve. But the divine oath contained in Psalm 110 was given after the law was codified. It appointed the son as the high priest as perfected forever, meaning that he will never fail us and he will never need to be replaced by another. The endless ages of eternity are going to come and go and he'll still be there. God, the son, our faithful and great high priest. Why would anyone want to go back? To living underneath the law. Two more verses. I want you to stay with me because these two verses, they're powerful. Let's read them. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. The author is now taking us back to the heavens, the dwelling place of God. This is where Jesus Christ serves as our high priest. It is the holy of holies that is in view. The throne that Christ is sitting on is not the Davidic throne, which he will one day reign from as the promised Messiah. You see, the Davidic throne of Christ is mentioned in Matthew 25. We dive into this more in our next study. But look at Matthew 25, 31 with me, where it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will, what, sit on the throne of his glory. It's a reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
when the Lord Jesus will establish his kingdom and reign from the Davidic throne. But what do we read in our text? Our text is a little different. It reads something else. It says the throne of the majesty where? In the heavens. This throne is in the heavens because right now he is serving as a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle. All along, the author has been pulling from Psalm 110. We've seen verse 4 a number of times that it says, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are priests forever according to the order of Melchizedek. But we forget about the very next words of verse 5 in that psalm where it says, The Lord is at your right hand. You see, two different times, Psalm 110 refers to Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly sanctuary, seated because why? His work is complete. You know, there were no chairs in the Old Testament tabernacle because the work of the priest was never finished. Each repeated sacrifice was a reminder that none of the sacrifices ever provided a finished salvation. All believers... All of the redeemed have unlimited access into the very presence of God because we have a high priest who makes that possible. There is a temple of God in heaven. Revelation eleven nineteen speaks of this. It says, then the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple and there was lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake and great hail. The earthly tabernacle constructed in the wilderness was just a copy of what was already in heaven because the true tabernacle is where God himself dwells, where his glory is manifested. And Isaiah, Isaiah wrote about this so long ago, and please don't miss this because I want you to remember that Uzziah was the king who dared to enter into the temple to serve like a priest. And Isaiah actually contrasts Uzziah's death with our divine king in heaven. When Isaiah had a vision of God in the heavenly temple, Isaiah 6 reads, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And watch these beautiful words. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. And can I just say that if the doorposts of the heavenly temple shook in response to God's holiness... How much more will the whole earth shake when the Lord returns again in Matthew 24? Do you remember Isaiah's response when confronted with the holiness of God? He said, woe is me. Woe is me, for I am undone. That's how you know all these books about people dying and going to heaven and having a great party are fake, because this would be the response. Woe is me. For I'm undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen who? The King, the Lord of hosts. The true tabernacle of God is where the Lord dwells, where his glory is manifested, where his holiness is acknowledged by angels. And this is from where his judgment upon man will be executed. 
The earthly tabernacle was built out of animal skins by men under the instruction of God. The tabernacle in heaven was built directly by God. And here's the teaching. Just as the tabernacle built out of animal skins in the wilderness was replaced by the massive and beautiful temple built by Solomon, so is the day coming, friends, when the heavenly tabernacle will be absorbed into the eternal holy city because the new Jerusalem and the new heaven and new earth they will have no temple building. Revelation 21 tells us that the Apostle John reports of this city, but I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Frederick Douglass, in his 77 years, he became America's most famous abolitionist. He delivered thousands of speeches, wrote three autobiographies, he started newspapers, he met with President Abraham Lincoln, and he championed the cause of African-American civil rights, but most people today downplay a crucial part of his life, his deep-seated Christian faith. During his childhood, Douglas suffered as a slave. Before his escape at age 20, Douglas both saw and suffered great cruelty. It was at its worst at the hands of the Christian slave owners. He saw firsthand brutal whippings, cold-blooded murder, the daily trials of the abuse. He watched a slave master beat his aunt, a 15-year-old girl at the time of just unimaginable striking beauty. He beat her nearly to death. Then in 1826, Douglas was sent to Baltimore to live with Hugh and Sophia Ald. Now, Sophia was a follower of Jesus Christ. And when Douglas heard her read from the book of Job, Douglas decided he had to know more, not about God, but about this man named Job. How could he say, despite his suffering, blessed be the name of the Lord? Douglas secretly taught himself to read. He became a convert to the Christian faith as a teenager. An assurance of salvation, it came a little slow, but he said that once he learned to cast his cares upon God, he understood he had faith in Christ and he understood Christ to be his redeemer, friend, and savior. But in March of 1833, Douglas was unexpectedly sent back to the Eastern shore. And for the next three years, he had to work as a field hand before escaping and settling in Massachusetts. By 1841, he was involved in the abolition movement and his task, his task was to convince Americans to see the anti-slavery cause as a great moral necessity. And so here's where I'm driving at. He often repeated this chastening refrain. Listen to the words that he said all the time to many, many people. Between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Jesus Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. You see, for Douglas, the problem was not Jesus Christ, and the problem was not the Christian faith. But Douglas, oh, he blasted what was going on in the churches. He said this, speaking of slavery, the man who wields the blood clotted cow skin during the week fills the pulpit on a Sunday and claims to be a minister of the meek and lowly Jesus. And he condemned what he called the, the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity 
that is everywhere present in America. Well, those are strong words, words I'd like to actually hear more of. But I think if he was here today, he would condemn more than just slavery. He would condemn the corruption. He would condemn the hypocrisy and the lukewarm Christian faith that has become ingrained in this United States of America. I believe he would once again utter the words between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Jesus Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. And he would condemn the hypocritical legalism of men, the prideful rules of men designed to take us further and further away from Christ. He would condemn the pharisaical strictness to the outward forms of religion of men who want to hold on to rules while neglecting love, while neglecting mercy, and while neglecting grace. Because when you walk down that road, you abandon the faith of Christ. It is this hypocrisy that Hebrews warns us of. Hebrews calls us to live a life based on his grace, a life lived by faith in the risen Savior, to find the pattern for our faith in Christ, to find his glory, his holiness, and to find your purpose, believer in Christ, in him. Hebrews, it draws us to a better, a better priest, to a better hope through which we can draw near to God. So hear me. We serve a righteous God in heaven. Let us live like his people on earth. And may the word of God continue to enable us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.